when the Reba show started, Shelby was about 12 years old. I got pregnant on the show. Mm-hmm. So you've known Riley his entire life. Yeah, from conception on. Yeah, you were there. Well, at least your songs were. That helped. <laughs> that does help. Clear the record. I was not there. Well, hey there. This is Reba McIntyre, and welcome to the show Living and Learning, because I'm learning a lot. And here's my buddy and my co-host, Miss Melissa Peterman. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. You're learning a lot. I'm living a lot. I'm living to learn and learning to live. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to write that down. You should write that down. That's some deep stuff. Oh, well, now here's a topic that we're going to have today that we're both experts in. <laughs> Well, I don't know about that. But anyway, we've had a blast with Riley and Shelby, and it's called Parenting Today. So it's a little different. Shelby's 30. Riley's 14. So, wow, things have changed since we had our children. They sure have. Coming up on the show today, we're going to be chatting with New York Times bestselling author Glennon Doyle. Plus, later we talk with country star Thomas Rhett and his beautiful wife, Lauren Akins. When did you know you wanted to be a mom? Did you always want to be a mom? No, absolutely not. I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Not until I was 34 years old. My gynecologist. That's where everything starts, right there. He said, don't have a child until you wake up in the morning and you want a child. At lunch, you want a child. At dinner, you want a child and you go to bed thinking about having a child. Unless that's the situation, don't have a child. There are a lot of work, there are a lot of responsibility, and you just can't bring them into the world and say, meh, I'm going to give them back. You can't do all of that. So be sure you want a child. And man, I did. And Norval and I had bought a condo in Nashville, and I was really wanting a baby. And he'd already had Shauna Chass and Brandon with Lisa. And so when I came up and I told Norval, I said, I really want to have a baby. He said, all right. Then we got married. And I got pregnant immediately. So do you think it was that you were just waiting to find the right person that you wanted to have a baby with? Was that it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Norval's great dad. And so I, I thought that was the perfect thing, perfect timing. I've always believed that timing is everything. So it, it just worked out wonderfully well. And talking about helicopter mom, mm-hmm, I was. Really? Shelby's nursery was right through a pocket door from our bedroom. So when I was laying in bed and the pocket door was open, I could see Shelby's bed. That was like the height of touring for you. I mean, when you had Shelby, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So how could you be a helicopter when you were, I mean, I don't see that. Oh, he was with me. I have pictures of me holding him with my outfit on, big hair and everything. When we'd get back in the plane after a concert, I'd lay Shelby on my shoulder and I'd go to sleep and he'd go to sleep. And, oh, it was just wonderful. See, I wouldn't call that helicopter, Mom, as as far as, because I always feel like that just hovers and hovers and is over-hovering. I think it was just really present, Mom, who had the blessing and opportunity to get to bring him with you. Because, you know, I met you when Shelby was about 12, and I never thought you were that person hovering over him to watch every second because you raised such a good kid. But, you know, I, I just think that you 
love being a mom and didn't want to leave them. Well, I'll give you another instance. We went home to Oklahoma and we were at mama's house and everybody was in the swimming pool. Well, Sam, Susie's boy, is six months older than Shelby. Well, he had his little swimsuit on and he was out there just jumping in. And I was like very protective. And I walked Shelby out in his little swimsuit. And I said, all right, I, don't splash him. Don't get him wet. And Alice looked at me and said, <laughs> Uh, they're getting in the swimming pool and they all made fun of me. So I'm going to say that before they say it. So you were a little helicopter mom. I was, but I really played on my childhood on raising Shelby. I spent as much time as I could with Shelby. Matter of fact, we'd play sometimes Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And when he had to stay at home to go to kindergarten stuff, I would, uh, if it was less than two hours, I would fly back home and, take him to school that morning and I would videotape me dropping him off and then I'd videotape me picking him up and coming in. And his first day of school, I had him out there on the carport and I said, okay, Shelby, tell me about your day today. And he went, oh, it was fine. Blah, blah, blah. I said, I turned it off. I said, Shelby, Stephen, do this right. You're going to look at this when you're 16 or when, or when you get married and you're going to want to wish you'd have done it better. And so I turned on the video camera again and I said, all right, Shelby, how was your first day at school today? He said, it was really good. I liked my teacher and everything was fine. Is that good enough for you, little missy? <laughs> He's always been the character. I think when I met you, when the Reba show started, Shelby was about 12 years old. I got pregnant on the show. Mm-hmm. So you've known Riley his entire life. Yeah, from conception on. Yeah, you yeah. were there. Well, at least totally. your songs were. That helped. That does um, help. Yes. That does help. <laughs> um, Clear the record. I was not there. I had to be pregnant and work with you for nine months. Like, was I a horrible pregnant person or was I a good pregnant person on the show? We didn't know you were pregnant. You were so good. <laughs> well, I didn't know I was pregnant, remember, till about like nine weeks. Like, I'm not bright. That's true. And you were falling over cars and everything. We find out later. We're like, oh, my gosh, you should have told us. But it was fun. You were great. And then more than you got to showing, we had purses in front of you and you were standing behind sofas. And you know, we got through it. But, boy, you were a trooper. And you worked right up to having Riley. I did. I was lucky. I was not one of those women that got very, very sick. And I was tired. I slept a lot. But for me, it was a pretty easy pregnancy. Yeah. I was a pretty laid back mom, I think, but also strict about some stuff. I think John and I were a good balance of, or we still are, of what I'm a softie for and what he's a softie for. I just remember thinking that I didn't want other mothers to tell me what I was doing wrong. I didn't like that. Oh, oh I didn't even think about that. I would go to mama for advice an awful lot. And I talked to my mom a lot and, and, you know, obviously, you know, my grandma is still here with us, but, you know, I think we all think we had it different or harder, but I do think what's harder, I think it's not harder. I think that, that the struggles you have change as years go by. Like if you had Shelby today, like, do you think it's easier to raise a kid when you had Shelby or now today? The big difference is for me, and I really can't address this because my situation was totally different. Mama had four kids in five years. Daddy was off rodeoing. Sometimes she didn't have a car. She didn't have a telephone. She didn't have a washing machine, microwave, nothing. And then here I come along having Shelby. I have nannies. I have housekeepers. I have people to help me all the time. So my time with Shelby was precious. I didn't have to do all the other stuff Mm -hmm. of changing diapers unless I wanted to, and which I 
thoroughly did enjoy. But the big difference nowadays, it's harder to raise children because what you were talking about, about social media, I did. I did get into Shelby's emails. That was when it was first starting their little chats and stuff just to see what was going on and, and who he was talking to. Now it's even more scary. And two, what kids know about sex uh, when they're four and five years old. My gosh, I didn't learn till 14, 15. And things that kids can watch on television nowadays, even the afternoon, if they're home and they flip by and everything is open. It's nothing censored. The fights that Riley and I have now are always about me trying to check what he's doing online because I believe I can. You know, I pay for it. And I do that know that he deserves a certain amount of privacy and I do give it to him. But I'm still that person that I will I will check what you're looking at. I will check who you're texting. I will check that. And when, you know, we have some sort of struggle, they said, look, I, I trust you and I, I will give you privacy. I know you deserve that, but I still reserve the right to to do that. I'm in charge of the phone. Mm-hmm. You know, Reba, we were both allowed to, as teenagers or as young people, make mistakes and it wouldn't be permanent. Like, that's what I always yeah. try to say to him. Like, anything you say it or write, permanent it's now. permanent. Yeah. And it's different. It's scary. The social media scares me for the children of today. They don't realize. They may be worldly, but they don't realize that there are people out there who could do them harm. You're right. I think about that too, where you, they are so smart and worldly because they have access to stuff. And I look at my kid who can, you know, tell me statistics on, you know, Dubai or anything because he could find it on the internet, but he's still Mm -hmm. trying to cut a hunk of cheese with a butter knife on a couch cushion. (laughs) And you realize, okay, you're still, you're still not that worldly. You're cutting a block of cheese with a butter knife on a couch cushion. Well, hopefully we can get some advice from our expert guest today, Glennon Doyle. She'll be giving us her top parenting tips and talking about how to navigate parenting in the modern world. Y'all stay tuned. Well, Glennon Doyle, thank you very much for joining us today on our podcast. Our podcast, Glennon, is called Living and Learning. And Melissa and I have had a blast at learning on different subjects. And today, it's about being a parent and parenting in nowadays times. We're just going to hit you with a lot of questions. <laughs> Great. You must, have, you must have been struggling. You pulled me in as the parenting expert here. We'll see what we can do, Reba. We'll see what we can do here. Well, you know, with my background, I've been a stepmom twice. Finally had a child when I was 35. So I've been all the way around the the globe with this parenting stuff. So it's good to hear you're, you've got a mixed batch of children. So. Yes. Yours is different than mine and Melissa's. Yeah. Well, this subject that we're doing today is modern day parenting. Totally different today than it was when I was growing up, when y'all were growing up. So everything's different nowadays. And then here you come doing it totally different now. So, Glennon, come on, tell us your story. I became bulimic when I was 10 years old. That morphed into all different kinds of addictions. And I didn't get sober until I was 25 years old and I found out that I was pregnant one year. On Mother's Day, I just found myself sitting on a bathroom floor holding a positive pregnancy test, just shaking and sweating from withdrawal and a hangover and terror. This is when I realized that if there is a God, this God has very low expectations, right? That like they, that, that, uh, that this God was offering me this invitation to become a mother. And there literally could have been no worse candidate for motherhood on the earth. Right. Like I was 
so sick. I was so addicted. I had burned every bridge in my life. I had been in and out of jail. Like I just, every shred of evidence on the outside was like, no, no. And still something inside me was just, yes. Just said, yes, I want to be a mother. Good for you. Yeah. So I got sober that day. So that day I called my sister from the bathroom floor. She came and picked me up off the floor and dragged me to my first recovery meeting. And that's where I found the first group of honest people I've ever met in my life. Wow. These people in those circles just saved my life. And I married the father of that baby. That baby is now almost 18 years old. He's going off to college next year. Dear God. (laughs) So Reba, I married this man because it was the right thing to do. Yeah. Because it was the right thing to do, right? And he married me because it was the right thing to do. And we were really good co-parents. You know, we got married because of that baby and we stayed together because of that baby and the two subsequent babies that came along 10 years into our marriage. I found out that he had been unfaithful to me throughout our entire marriage. Wow. So that was a doozy and a sucky day. (laughs) (laughs) Sucky day, Reba. (laughs) So the babies were little and, and I just... I just decided I'm going to make this work. And I did. I tried so hard and he tried so hard. We did every single thing you're supposed to do to find this forgiveness that I was just waiting to fall upon my lap from the sky as a reward for all of my suffering and trying. Right. And in some ways we did heal. Like in some way we were functioning again. We were a happy little family. I mean, from the outside, we looked like, you know, we could have been in a calendar. Mm -hmm. But the problem was that inside I was always just raging. (laughs) I was just like this little bubbling brook of rage. So just a seething river of rage covered with just a little veneer of, you know, lip gloss and some hairspray. Just rage. Melissa, a dormant (laughs) volcano with lip gloss (laughs) is what I was. Okay. (sighs) And then I wrote this book, you guys. So I wrote this book called Love Warrior, which was being released a few years ago and was making a big splash. Oprah picked it for her book club. So it was like, you know, being touted all over the world as this epic marriage redemption story. Okay. That was the tagline, epic marriage redemption story. So I'm at the first event to launch Love Warrior. The lady I'm talking to turns towards the door. And so I turn towards the door and there's this freaking woman standing in the door, 13 feet tall, And she has like this shaved head with like this blonde mohawk type thing on her head. And she has these like bright blue eyes. And she is like super, like, like superhero cool, but has this warmth that's just radiating from her and everyone's staring at her because it is like, it's like the Mockingjay just landed at our nerdy (laughs) book party. Okay. (laughs) And none of us understand what's happening. And you guys, every molecule in my body just says, there she is. So fast forward, I just fell madly in love with this woman at a very, very inconvenient time because I'm supposed to be on the road talking about Love Warrior. And can we just, just for everyone out there, can we name the woman? Oh, yes, 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 yes. We called her Mockingjay. So Mockingjay has another name and her name is Abby Wambach. She's a soccer. Star person. So, yeah. And at the time, I had a very, very 
Christian base of my community, my nonprofit, my online communities. And people promised me that if I went public at that time, that it would be career suicide. And I knew that it wouldn't because I knew that the community that I had built for so long was more nuanced and wise and deep and loving than that. And they were, and they are. Yeah, it's been absolutely beautiful. So now we have this wild family. Craig, actually right now, as I speak to you, I'm hiding in the basement of a log cabin. I don't know what the deal is with camping. I think it's part of lesbian culture. I don't know. I'm new to this. Um, I'll tell you that it's not my favorite part of lesbian culture. But here we are. We're in this log cabin in the mountains with Abby, our three kids, Craig, my ex-husband, his girlfriend, and her four-year-old son. Wow. And this is just how we do it. You are the epitome of modern parenting and that families come in all different variations and they are in different components. And it's fantastic. So when you and Craig divorced, you stayed friends because that's what you were. Yeah. Basically friends raising kids. Exactly. Okay. So you're the first person to say it that way. And that's exactly what it was. We didn't have to shift our relationship much. Yeah. So do y'all split time with the kids? Mm-hmm. How old are your kids too right now? My oldest is 17, the one I told you about with the sobriety day. And then we have a girl who's 14 and another little girl who's 12. Wow. With my stepkids, I always told them, I said, I'm not your mama. Um, mm-hmm. You've got a mama and mm-hmm. she's a good one. And I'm here to be your buddy, help you out. But you will mind while you're in my house, my house, my rules, and you're going to abide by my rules and you're going to work. But to be that parent for them, I I just kind of had to step back and not be that. But now don't you think, Reba, like as grownups that they don't just think of you as a buddy, like you are an extra mom, you're a bonus mom. I mean, don't you think? Yeah, but I didn't want to force feed them that. Right. That I was their all the other mother. No, I didn't want to do that at all. But yeah, we're all very close. Mm. And I appreciate Lisa letting me share in their raising and be a part of their lives. And uh, I just love them with all my heart. Mm. It's so beautiful. How long have you and Abby been married? Three years. Okay. How did you approach all of this change to the kids? Oh, Reba, I still think that the day we told our kids was the worst day, the hardest day of my life. And I have had some doozies. Some, some doozies, yeah. <laughs> I sure have. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just telling you, I don't say that lightly. Okay. <laughs> don't take it lightly. <laughs> no. I also think that maybe because we've been able to forge this family that is lovely and beautiful in many ways, that people might assume that the divorce wasn't awful and it was awful. I mean, I, when we sat down on that couch and told the kids, I felt like I could actually see their hearts breaking. Mm. I used to think my job was to protect my kids from life in every way. Like I thought that was the job of parenting. I now know much better than that, but I really did believe that my job was to protect them from hard things, even if those hard things were true. I had painted these children into this like Norman Rockwell fake idea of what their lives were going to be. So it was a sudden shattering for them. It wasn't like one of those scenarios where mom and dad are fighting for a really long time and it's a relief. Mm -hmm. It was a total shock. And it was and is the absolute right thing for our family. Oh, sure. Yeah. Look in hindsight and absolutely. 
I just think that we sometimes are tricked into thinking if something is hard, then it must not be right. Mm. You know, but once a week, I, I look at their little, they, they, they pack up to go to their dads and they, all their little bags and their shoes are in the foyer. And I look at it and it just hurt. It gives me a pang in the heart every time I see it. Cause it's just like a symbol of like, kids shouldn't have to do this. They shouldn't go back and forth. And it's just hard. And then I remind myself, no, things can be hard and still be exactly right. I love that. You know, it's the right kind of hard. It's honest, hard. It's not like she was added to our family. It's like she was missing from our family. Did your kids back you all the way on all of this? Did they, were there any repercussions that they were having and feeling? Not with the gay thing. I mean, luckily, like we say, my kids, by the time Abby and I got together, had been to more gay pride parades than Abby. And she's like the gayest gay that ever gayed. So (laughs) I would say that most of their pain that they had and still have just comes from, from divorce, you know, comes from not being, um, having their parents together in the same house, but not from the, the gay thing. Okay. That's great. And that you guys handle it so well and they get to see each of you and y'all get along. Yeah, Man, that's the best of a bad situation that has just really taken the bull by the horns and gone forward. That's wonderful. You have five amazing parenting tips. So if you want to share them, we'd love to hear them. Oh, I'd love to hear them. All right. So my first one is to be a model, not a martyr. My goal as a parent was to never hurt my children. Okay. And so when I was faced with the question, will I abandon myself again? Or will I abandon everyone's expectations of myself? I almost chose, I'm just going to abandon myself again. Because I just could not fathom hurting especially for some reason especially my middle daughter she's just so highly sensitive that I just thought this is going to kill her right and one day I was braiding that little girl's hair and I was looking at her and I thought I'm staying in this marriage for her but would I want this marriage for her Hmm. and if I would not want this marriage for my little girl then why am I modeling bad love and calling that good mothering. Mm-hmm. Yep. We are trained as mothers, as women, to prove our love by ceasing to exist, by burying our dreams, by burying our ambition, by burying our feelings, by burying our humanity in honor of our children, which is such a burden for the children of martyr mothers to bear. Okay. To be, to never know their mothers never truly know them, to never truly see them, right? Except to know that if one day they decide to marry and have children, they too will have to slowly die. Because if we hold up martyrdom as the epitome of motherhood, of parenthood, then that is what they will strive to become. My point being, the epitome of motherhood is not to slowly die. To give up everything for somebody else. Because that's not a gift. That is a burden. The guilt you feel like she gave up going back to school because of me. And you've got it. You would feel guilty. You'd feel horrible. Is the epitome of fatherhood martyrdom? No. Of course not. Not at all. Of course not. No. Fathers are supposed to show up and be the heroes and mothers are supposed to disappear and be quiet. Serve. We don't want mothers who slowly died for us. We want mothers to show us how to bravely live. Good deal. Let them have their pain was the second one. So my parenting generation, we just got this terrible memo you know, the generation of the helicopter parents. Right. It was just like, they handed us the baby and they were like, this is every hope and dream fulfilled in your life. Like you are now fixed and fulfilled. And if you have any more pain or sadness or longing, there's something wrong with you. Okay. 
take it home and make sure nobody ever frowns at it and no raindrop ever falls upon its head. Like take this human home and make sure that human life never happens to it. Okay. Yeah. And that, that's why we are all neurotic in my parenting generation. And that's why all our kids suck. Okay. Our kids <laughs> just suck. They suck because people who do not suck are people who have failed people who have felt pain, who have been hurt and felt the sting of hurt. So they don't want to hurt other people. True. People who do not suck are people who have learned to win with dignity, but also lose with grace. So in trying to be good parents by protecting our kids from everything, we have stolen from them the one thing that will allow them to become people who do not suck, which is struggle. Failure. Failure. Good people, people with character are not people who have never had to overcome something. They're people who have overcome and overcome and overcome. Mm -hmm. Teach them to disappoint you. I remember Tish coming home one day and saying, Chase, so Chase, uh, our older son, wanted her to sign up for the same clubs that he had been in in high school. And she came home and she said, Mom, I just don't want to do those clubs. Like, I just, I don't want to disappoint him, but I don't feel like I just, they're not right for me. And there was something about her saying, I don't want to disappoint him. That scared me coming from a a young girl, right? Mm -hmm. So I said to her, your job, is to disappoint as many people in your life as it takes so that you never have to disappoint yourself. And she said, even you? (laughs) And I said, especially me. We want to have children who will abandon everybody else's expectations so that they themselves never abandon their own hopes and dreams and expectations. Mm Mm-hmm. The next one is show them what brave means. So I've got two little girls and they're asking to get their ears pierced. Okay. So I don't know, I was feeling some mommy guilt. I think I'd been gone on a bunch of trips at the time. So I was like, okay, fine. We'll go to the mall. We'll get your ears pierced. So the youngest one gets to the little piercing kiosk. She jumps up in the chair. (laughs) So the piercer says, do you want me to do them both at once or one at a time? And Emma says, both, both do it. (laughs) So she gets her ears pierced. She does it. Her ears are like all swollen, like little tomatoes. And Tish, my cautious one, she's watching the whole thing. And she looks over at me and she says, I changed my mind. I'm not doing that. And I said, okay, all right. Are you sure? She said, yes, I'm sure. I said, okay, go tell the lady. So she walks over and she says, excuse me, ma'am. I'm, I'm actually not going to do this today. And something interesting happens, which is that the piercer and two other women who are standing there, they're trying to be kind, but they start saying to her, oh, come on, sweetie, you can do it. Be brave. Be brave. Look, your sister did it. Look how brave your sister is. Be brave like your sister. And I can see Tish wilt a little bit. And I know I can tell that something's wrong with what's happening, but I can't figure it out in real time, you know? And so Tish is looking sad and, and I say, no, 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 we're good. And we're walking back to the car and in the car, I figured out the problem with that. And I think the problem with that is that I don't think any of us know anymore what brave means. Okay. I think at some point somebody put on a meme that brave means being afraid and doing it anyway. And so we all just said, okay, that's what it means. And started, you know, posting it. And that's what became the definition of brave. But actually, things are only true if they're true all the way through. And telling a six-year-old that brave is being afraid and doing it anyway might work. But what if that kid turns 16? And that 16-year-old is getting into a car. And they tell us they're going to the movies. But they're actually going to the kegger down the street, right? 
are we going to walk up to that kid and say, okay, honey, be brave tonight. And what I mean by brave is if your peers start to do something that makes you feel afraid inside, I just want you to plow through that gut instinct of yours, right? I just want you to do it anyway, because brave means feeling afraid and doing it anyway. That is not what brave means, right? Often brave people are people who have an instinct that says no, and then they say no on the outside. I would argue that in that situation at the ear piercer, Emma was brave because she wanted to get her ears pierced. And she said that on the outside, Tish was fiercely brave because she decided she did not want to get her ears pierced. And she said it on the outside. And I would argue that Tish was braver because the thing that Tish was going to have to say was not going to earn her the applause. Decide what brave means to you, right? Because kids can get confused and think brave means doing the daring thing, no matter what my gut is telling me to do. That's huge. So what's number five? Yeah. What's number five? Okay. Number five is we can do hard things. So when I was getting sober, I was a teacher. I was an elementary school teacher, but it was so hard getting sober. And I was miserable in the very, in the beginning of it. And I used to make my class walk by my friend Josie's classroom every single day because she had this big sign across her window that said, we can do hard things. And there was something about that sign that made me, I don't know. It just made me feel braver. You know, it's like, I knew what that meant when I was teaching. It's like, you know, when you're teaching a kid, I'd I'd be teaching a kid cursive or something. And they would say, no, this is too hard. And they'd want to quit. And I would say, oh, no, no, that's good. The hard is good, right? The hard just means like you're on the edge of something. You're learning something. Hard doesn't mean you're doing anything wrong. It means you're doing something right, right? Keep going, keep going, keep going. And so I think about it all the time. My kids use it. It's like, yeah, life is really, really hard. And the secret is that often we, when life gets hard, we think it's because we're doing something wrong. But what I've noticed is that parenting, marriage, relationships, work, all of it is often hardest for the people who are doing it right. Hmm. Not phoning it in. So when you are doing the work to keep a relationship, a friendship, a marriage, a partnership, any of that, it is work and it is hard. It's really hard. Yeah, absolutely. And that does not mean we're doing it wrong. Wow. Glenna, I have learned so much from you. Thank you so much for being a part of our podcast. It's living and learning, and you definitely have opened the door and the window on both. Oh, thank you. I'm so honored to be here with you. I'm so glad you're doing this podcast. Okay, so how can we find your newest book? The new book, Untamed, it has been in the top five of the New York Times list. It was number one for 11 weeks. Congratulations. It's been in the top three for the last 20 weeks. It's sold a million copies in 20 weeks. It's so insane. Wow. Yeah. So go get Untamed for sure. And just I'm on Instagram at Glennon Doyle. And Together Rising is my nonprofit. That is really what my entire life is about. So follow Together Rising on Instagram too. I love it. Thanks, Glennon. Really appreciate you being with us. Have a great day. Thank you so much. Stick with us. Next up, we're going to talk to our friends, oh, an adorable couple and parents of three beautiful daughters, Thomas Rhett and Lauren Akins. We're back and so excited to welcome Thomas Rhett and Lauren Akins to the show. Hey, guys. Lauren, last time I saw you, you were pregnant. Oh, yeah. I am not pregnant anymore. Praise the Lord. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And Thomas Rhett, last time I saw you was after we recorded the song together. I know. Gosh, can you? I cannot believe how just much that has 
that is accomplished. It's been unbelievable to watch the journey of that song. Thank you so much for being a part of it. You're very welcome. We are doing the podcast today on parenting. And since you guys have three beautiful young daughters, <laughs> we thought it would be the best representation of this topic. Oh, goodness. Thomas Rhett, I can't believe I'm talking to you here. I know. Because you and Shelby, I can still see y'all as little old bitty boys. You and Shelby are the same. All three of y'all are the same age, yeah. 30 yeah. years old. And I knew your dad and your mom and, you know, y'all coming to the house when Narvel was managing your dad. So uh, it's just so funny that here we are another generation later getting <laughs> to visit about y'all's kids. It's so nuts. So how are you handling all of this? First of all, the fact that you have three young girls and you're probably all in quarantine together and that you're able to set up mics and do a podcast, you've already established that you're fantastic parents well, in that moment. <laughs> thank goodness for both of our mothers that can come hang with us at the drop of a yeah, hat as well. We've, so We've been quarantining with our family, my sister and her husband, the first round of quarantine, they all lived with us. And my best friend moved in, lived with us. We just had a house full of people here for like 40 days straight. It was just yeah. us. And we just moved into a house and I just had the baby. So there were three littles, a bunch of adults. So no stress level at all. Zero. Zero. No, like, uh -uh. No, it, no easy, chaos, easy. no nothing. And Lauren, your new book is out, Live in Love. You do talk about your kids. Tell us about your three beautiful girls. I call them my, my three little best friends because I feel like I do. My life is just them three. And they're all so very different, but they all love each other so well and so much. Lennon is a pretty chill baby, mm -hmm. and but her favorite people in the whole world are Willie Gray and Ada James. And so if I can't get her to calm down or something, I'm, I'm screaming across the house, Willie Gray, Lennon needs you. <laughs> and she is five in November and she's kind of getting to the age where she can really be super helpful to me a whole lot. And she wants to be, she's so, she's so maternal. She wants to pick her up. She wants to feed her bottles. She wants to, we're doing foods now and she wants to feed her all the foods and help me change her diaper and pick out what clothes she's going to wear. Everything that we do, we all four are doing it together most of the time. And Ada James is our little spitfire. She likes to be dirty and she's the rough one that will body slam you in two seconds. And she's always <laughs> the one getting hurt. And she's so cute. She's so funny. They all three have very different personalities already. They all three are obsessed with Disney music, all things mm -hmm. Disney and all things Thomas Rhett. Yeah. Reba and I were talking earlier today about what kind of, you know, I have one son who's 14 and Shelby's 30. Yeah. And we were talking about what kind of parents or mothers we were. And how would you describe yourself? What's your parenting style? What kind of parents are you? I'm pretty strict when it comes to manners and like being kind to siblings, parents, and all others. But other than that, like as far as nap times, bedtimes, germs, what clothes they're wearing, what their hair looks like, I'm so laid back, probably to a fault. I'm on the other end of the spectrum. I have to stick to a schedule. You know, like if nap time is at 1245, we have to be upstairs by 1230 or else the schedule is ruined. And if bedtime's at 730, we're making it to bedtime. But Lauren is definitely the one that's like, well, let's just make it to this next scene of Frozen because they love that next scene. <laughs> <laughs> when I'm just sitting there, my leg is shaking. I'm like, we have to get everybody to bed because I don't know. I don't know why I'm wired that way because I wasn't raised that way. I wasn't raised very scheduled, if you will. But I've become kind of 
I think quarantine did it to me. I, I didn't used to be very OCD about dishes or a clean house or anything, um, but I have become over the top. Uh, like if there's a dish in the sink, it has to go in the dishwasher immediately. So what's the big difference between the way you guys are raising your kids and the way you were raised? What are you doing different? I think, <laughs> I think if you were to ask our parents, our parents in the beginning of us uh, starting to become parents, they were like, y'all are, y'all are just too strict. I feel like my our parents are both like, why don't y'all just why don't y'all just let them eat ice cream, you know, at, at ten o'clock at night, and and we're sitting there going because you don't have to put them to bed, yeah, you know, and because they're they're crazy when they eat sugar late at night, and just I think there's different parenting styles. I mean, I think you either kind of go exactly how your parents parented you, or you go completely opposite, or you kind of do a little bit of both. And I would say we're kind of right there in the middle of the way that our parents parented us compared yeah. to how we parent our kids. Yeah, my dad was fairly strict. Both my parents are really, they're goofy. They're just, they love life and love adventure. And so I think I pull that from both my parents and I try to make things adventurous and fun and, and not take life too seriously because it just, it's not worth it. But like I said, I feel like we are pretty strict about how our kids speak to people and treat each other. And we're big on being kind and using kind words, <laughs> especially now, I feel like there's just so much in the world that, and of course, a lot of it is because it's on social media and you're able to see a lot of the good and a lot of the bad. But um, I think even more so now, Thomas Rhett and I are just trying to place that emphasis on just being kind in yeah. whatever situation you're in. If you're if you're handling it with kindness and love, you're probably doing the right thing. But our parents are that way too. Yeah. So we definitely got that from our parents. Mm-hmm. I think some of that ice cream stuff is like, you know, I remember my parents, they would never have given me ice cream at 10 o'clock at night, but all of a sudden they become grandparents. Oh, yeah. Just completely <laughs> switched their philosophy of like, yes. yeah, he can have. So it's, they weren't even, they were strict too. But now that they're grandparents, right. it's like free for all. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You know? I mean, that's how I'm going to be as a grandparent, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah, that's the joy of it. Exactly. <laughs> I saw a video of probably the most incredible Ariel or rendition of Ariel on Instagram. Oh, and I believe you. Thomas, um, as a, the ultimate dad girl, three young girls who love Disney, you donned a red wig and played Ariel. Yeah. yeah. And that was before I started drinking uh, wine that night. Um, <laughs> I was completely sober. Completely sober. Um, but no, it's, uh, they, they just love it so much. And, uh, you know, I mean, I think we've seen Frozen and Moana legit. 3,000 times a piece uh, since, since wow. quarantine has happened. And so I've started to just be, kind of become a fan of them. You know, so when they're just watching those movies, I'll just go in there and sit and hang like I'd watch a movie anyway. Like you realize all the kids are in bed and Lauren's like, um, they're not even here. And you're, you're like, like yeah, no, but this but is the, the best, best part. part. <laughs> yeah, it's the best part. They're funny. They, they've started, I mean, I, you always see this stuff in movies about dads learning how to braid hair and letting letting your kids put makeup on your face and I had my feet on the counter the other night, and Willa Gray was painting my left foot, and Ada James was painting my right foot, and I still have pink toenail polish on both my feet. So, <laughs> it's just so I think cute. as a girl dad, you just kind of you just kind of let it happen, you know? Yeah, yeah. So back in 2016, you guys adopted Willa Gray yeah. and brought her back from Uganda. Tell us about that. I just kind of newly come on board an organization at the time called 147 Million Orphans. And we were doing a lot of work in a town, um, Masindi, Uganda. And so we were there at a children's home providing food, water, medical, et cetera. And I met her there. And this was 2016. Mm-hmm. And she was five months old. And I quickly fell in love with her. And we didn't know 
anything about her background as far as family. She didn't have any records. And we looked and tried to find anyone that may have any information about her. And long story short, we just never found anyone. And so we knew she was adoptable and in need of a forever family. And so I called him and uh, just told him the story. And I said, this little girl is so precious. Like she's the sweetest little soul. And I just know this is not her future. And we just, we know so many people who are looking to start a family. And at the time we were trying not to adopt, but we were trying to biologically have a kid and we just hadn't gotten pregnant yet. We weren't like concerned. I feel like it gets spun that we just like couldn't get pregnant for the longest time, but it wasn't really that. It was just like, yeah, I think we're ready to start a family. And then I met Willa Gray. And so when I was telling Thomas Red about her, I said, we just, we know so many people who are ready to do this. And a lot of people really looking to adopt and have a baby that way. We just need to spread the word back in Nashville. I know we can find her forever home. And I will never forget without any hesitation he looked at me over FaceTime and was like, we'll do it. We'll we'll bring her home. And I was just like, what? <laughs> I was like, what, what I do don't you even, mean we'll do it? I don't even remember saying it. It's, it's the crazy. It's like it's almost like the Lord legit yeah. came into my body and just spurted it out, you know? Um, Meant to be. Yeah. yeah. And, then, and then we started the process, and it was she a wild ride for sure. Yeah. And, and there are different laws in, yeah. in Uganda. You have to foster to adopt. So it was a lot of me living over there and coming back here for doctor's appointments because I got pregnant in the middle of it. And, <laughs> but we're stateside now with with all three kids. And I always joke and they're like, how is it? And I'm like, you know what? It's so much easier being here than when him and I were having to live life with me, Willa Gray and Ada James in my belly in Uganda. And he was living life here. So I'm like, listen, I wow. feel like as long yeah. as we are all five together, we're good. We can We can make whatever happen we need to if we can just stick together. Yeah. Well, quarantine's a piece of heaven for y'all. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, when you guys jump in, you jump in big every time. Oh, uh-huh. uh, well, yeah. We don't do anything small. That's oh, for yeah. sure. <laughs> so what were some of the biggest challenges you faced? And I'm curious, how do you address adoption with your daughter? Oh, yeah. I mean, do you find that you have to have these conversations with other people, too? Yes, yeah, we sure. have them with other people. I feel like him and I are pretty open, so I think people feel safe to ask us questions a lot of the times. Even on the road, you know, we'll get asked very personal questions. And I think for the most part, people just want to know, like, how we're viewing going forward with Willa Gray and Ada James and Lennon and us having this blended-looking family. Willa Gray's so smart. She knows. Mm -hmm. You know, I choose to believe that her biological mother didn't have another choice. And the most loving thing she knew how to do is to leave her where she knew somebody would find her and take care of her. And so we tell her those stories. And she was fascinated both pregnancies. But this the second one, she's a little bit older, so she's able to understand a lot more. Uh-huh. I think our style of parenting that whole situation is just being as open and honest as we can with her from the beginning, you know, whatever's appropriate for her age, but always telling her the truth. Uh-huh. You were going to go on a book tour, correct, before everything sort of happened? And where is that stand? Tell us about the book, Live in Love. Oh, yeah. So we were supposed to go on book tour in May. May, yeah. I can't even remember what our life was. <laughs> I'll tell you um, what. It, it's March 87th right now, and everything's fine. It's all the same. Uh, yeah. Yep. We were going to go on book tour, and it was going to be right before he started tour, right? 
Yes. So he was going to come on tour with me for a little bit. Yes. Which I was really excited about. Uh Uh-huh. And the kids were going to come, and it was just going to be a thing. But that didn't happen. And now I'm real anxious for it to come out. If you could sum it up in a couple sentences, it's a memoir, but it really is just telling the story of your guys' love together and adoption. Just give us a little synopsis because we everyone can pre-order. That's right. You learn a lot about my parents and who they are and the way we were raised and how that played into who I am today. And those major things are faith and kindness. And I feel like the biggest, probably my biggest motto or what I've tried to live by growing up is each door the Lord opens, I will say yes and walk through it, regardless of what I see on the other end, if I can even see what's on the other side. Just because, you know, he he's the one who made me. He's the one who made my dreams. And he knows my heart better than I do. And every time I've said yes to him, I have not regretted it. And it has brought me to a much more full and fun, adventurous happy life. A lot of ups, a lot of downs, but that's life and that's how you learn. That's how you grow. Goes through our marriage, adoption, kids, him on the road, my struggles with that. The book really goes into a lot of that detail. And I feel like when I meet people on the road, they do ask, they want to know. They want to know the personal questions. They want to know about our kids and our home life and what it really is like. And so when this opportunity presented itself, that's kind of where it landed, was just me trying to kind of just give people who wanted to know who we were when we were young and who we are now and how that shaped us. That's really what it's about. And now think how easy it will be when all those people come up to you and ask all those questions. <laughs> and you can go, you know what? Just buy the book. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> buy the book. I love it. Well, I, I'm going to pre-order and well, I can't wait so to much. read it. Thank you. Thank you. I hope that you like it. Well, I know I will. Are we, do we want to play game now or do we, are you Let's, ready? Sure. You're game. leading the game. Aren't you, Red? All right. This is a game called Would You Rather. <laughs> oh, gosh. Oh, boy. Okay. Would you rather get pooped on or barfed on? Barfed. Mm, barfed. Tantrum on a plane or tantrum on a road trip? Road, road trip. trip. <laughs> I always thought if they throw a tantrum on a plane, I'd just say, oh, hey. Lady, what are you doing over there? Can you take this kid? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've had tantrums on a plane and a road trip, and nobody was nice to me when I had them. <laughs> Your kid comes home with a surprise tattoo or a surprise dog? Dog. <laughs> You'd rather a tattoo? Yeah, no, dog, dog, dog. Depends on what the tattoo is. <laughs> no, there it is. What if it's a tattoo of a dog? I'd rather the tattoo of the dog. Tattoo. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I still would probably say dog. <laughs> okay. They're easier to love. Okay. Do you want to keep them as babies forever or toddlers forever? Ooh. Toddlers. D- yikes. Oh, I don't know. I'm, I'm just not. I'm not, I'm not good at the baby. Fa- like, I, I'm fine at it, but I think crying uncontrollably when I can't understand or ask you what's wrong with you stresses me out to the max. Yeah. And maybe toddler, because I feel like Thomas Rhett is able to handle toddler a little (laughs) bit better. So as long as we're married, I'm going to choose toddler. (laughs) Okay. All right. Would you rather that they play football or play a violin or fiddle? Football. Football. I I love football. Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Really? Why is it the parent never wants the child to go into what they did? That's exactly what it is. That's a whole different podcast. That's exactly what it is. (laughs) Yeah, that is a totally different podcast. Yeah. Okay, that they move out right at 18 or they never move out? Move out right at 18. 
honey. Really? Honey. Really? What are you going to say? But, you I mean, they're, they're, not, they're never, they're not going to never move out, but I'd, I'd be fine. Said. I'd be fine with like 22, 23, like no, no. Grayson. 18 or stay. All right, 18. Good choice. 18. I wanted all of my kids to stay at the house with me. And then I changed my mind. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, thank y'all so much for being on our program with us. We really appreciate it. I've learned a lot. Well, thank well, you for having us. Thank you very much. I really have. It's been so You've fun talking to y'all. You've in your life. And, and now thank y'all for being a part of our podcast. <laughs> Melissa and I really appreciate it. Give the kids a big hug for us and I hope to see you guys real soon. Awesome. Thank y'all. Good to see you. Thank y'all. Bye-bye. Bye, y'all. Bye. Aren't they sweet? They are. It's, I mean, I remember seeing them too at like, was it the ACMs? Like they're the two, they are both so beautiful, like outside and then also like on the inside. And then it just doesn't seem even real sometimes that they're just, and they're young and cute. They're just adorable. Uh Uh-huh. That's a lot of love and, and, in both relationships, both families, a lot of love for Glennon to be able to stay with Craig and let him stay with the kids and her be with the kids. And that's a lot of love. That's a lot of giving. And for Thomas, Rhett, and Lauren to adopt and Lauren know that Willa was the baby for them. And for Thomas, Rhett to say the same thing, we can raise her. So it's just a lot of love, and that's what we always need more of. Absolutely. So it's been a great episode. I've learned a lot, and we continue living and and learning. And to all our listeners, thank you all very much for taking this journey with us. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as Melissa and I have. And uh, we'll see what we can get into next time on uh, uh, Living and Learning. Living and Learning with Reba McIntyre is a Spotify original podcast. Hosted and produced by me, Reba McIntyre, and my dear friend, Melissa Peterman. Our executive producers are Liz Gately, Yasi Salek, Gina Delvac, Danny Trebatch, and Justin McIntosh. Also produced by Dylan Rupert. Michael Hardman is our editor. Original music is composed by Doug Sizemore. Special thanks to Cultivated Entertainment, Leah Edwards, Alec Nelson, Robert Adler, and Casey Simonson for production support.